We have, a number of, we have a number of scripture readings this morning, as you can see from the bulletin. And what we're doing is we're reading through the events that, led, that lead up to the crucifixion. And so what I'm going to invite uh, is we have kind of two readings at a time. And so I'll invite both readers up uh, and we'll kind of do one right after the other. And when they're done reading, I'm just going to simply invite you to stand at that point. I'm not going to come back up and say, now please stand. So after these two readings and we go to sing How Deep the Father's Love for Us, if you would rise at that point. But if Jim and Ashley, if you could come forward now. Uh, and read uh, the scriptures for us. First, Jim, and then Ashley. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? They paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. When the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where would you have us prepare the Passover? To, uh, where would you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at my house, at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the 12 and while, and, and as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say, say to him, one after the other, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as, is, as, as, it, as it is written, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for, the, for that man to have not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, you have said so. Matthew 26, 30 to 46. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here where I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. 
And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep, and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. We are going to continue our readings in Matthew 26 and 27. I'm going to first invite Cody forward and then Daryl. Um, and after Daryl's reading, after the second reading, uh, again, please stand and sing uh, the next hymn. Cody. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi, and then kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all those who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Matthew 27, 11 to 26. Now Jesus, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? for he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, 
which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. We are going to conclude our readings in Matthew with uh, two more from Matthew 27. Craig and Dina are going to lead us in those. Read those for us. First Craig and then Dina. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before them, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Matthew 27, 45 to 56. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. 
But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Morning, everyone. It is uh, good to be with you. Uh, it's, it's funny to say this, but thank you to the elders for inviting me to come preach. Uh, well, we are going to be studying God's Word today, specifically the last passage of Scripture we just read, the one that Dina read. But first, let's ask for the Lord's blessing on this time as we study His Word. Let's pray. God, you gave your only Son for us to pay the cost of our redemption. Thank you. Help us to understand this great love you have given to us. We ask this in the name of your suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, Last words matter. Last words matter. In the film Saving Private Ryan, I'm sure many of you have seen it, it's a World War II film, there's this scene at the end of the movie where, uh, well, spoiler, they save Private Ryan. Um, but it costs like six out of the eight guys who went to go save him end up dying. Like it's a really heavy thing. And as Captain Miller is shot up and he's dying and he's bleeding out, he says these last words to Private Ryan. He says, earn this, earn it. And instead of the, I thought this was really interesting, instead of like the the movie fading to black and the credits rolling and sappy music playing, instead of that expected ending, the screen fades to an old James Ryan, decades later, and he's at a a war memorial cemetery, and he's standing before the cross, uh, the memorial cross of Captain Miller, and, and he's distraught. It's not y'all's break time, it's the students. Um, He is distraught standing before this cross of Captain Miller. And and he's saying, uh, he's kind of speaking to Captain Miller in this moment, and he's saying, every day I think about those words that you said to me. And and I have tried to live my life the best that I could. I, I hope that was enough. I hope that in your eyes I have earned this that I've earned what you've done for me. And then James Ryan's wife walks over to him and and he looks at her and he says, tell me that I've led a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. Desperation, guilt, fear baked into this man because of the last words of Captain Miller as he died. It is tragic. Now, in one sense, it's nice to be like stirred up to really feel the cost of somebody's sacrifice. But it's tragic because James Ryan knows that he will never live a good enough life to make up for the death of those six men. 
to pay the cost of what they sacrificed for him. Today is Good Friday. It is a day, a special day for us where we come and we see and we meditate on the cross of Christ. Special attention to his sacrifice. Now today we're going to be listening to his last words because we need to. Because many of us, many Christians walk around and, and, and we walk with this fear and this guilt in our lives because we see our sin. We see that we do not live our lives well enough to cover the cost of what Jesus has done. And Jesus on the cross sometimes even to us can feel more like Captain Miller saying, earn this, do this. Or maybe a parent guilt tripping you saying, after all I've done for you, this is what you're doing, this is the life that you're leading. Do you feel this? But are these the last words of Jesus? Let's find out. We're going to listen to his last words, really his last cries. His cry of abandonment and his cry of death. And then we'll talk about you and me. His cry of abandonment, his cry of death, and then you and me. So part one is cry of abandonment or, or dereliction. So Jesus has been crucified. Uh, verse 45, it's noon and, and the sun goes dark. You know, there's darkness over the land. And then look at verse 46. Jesus cries out, Eli, Eli, lema sevaktani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, we're going to spend some time meditating on those words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a question. Why? Now, we're, we're going to answer that why, but, but first we're going to have to answer like some what's. Like, like, what does it even mean for Jesus to say that he was forsaken by God? I mean, he is God, right? And what's going on with all these soldiers here that are taunting him in the midst of this and Elijah and all that? After we talk about that, we're, we're going to answer that why question. So, so yes, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Some of you kids were in uh, Resurrection Kids, you know, maybe a month or so ago, and we were talking about this, the hypostatic union. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Fully God, fully man, the hypostatic union. And that union started whenever the Son of God came and he entered the womb of the Virgin Mary. And that union has held strong every single day since then. And it will hold strong until eternity. Like God is, like Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. There is no separation from, from Jesus' human nature and his divine nature. So then why in the world does Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, uh, you know that he's quoting the opening lines of Psalm 22. And uh, Psalm 22 is a song about the Messiah. And the Messiah is suffering. And if you go and read the psalm, you'll be like, this is Jesus. Uh, the, 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 the Messiah is being mocked. The Messiah's clothes are taken from him. They're gambled for. His hands and his feet are pierced. He's laid in the dust of death. It's Jesus. It's Jesus' death. 
And then if you, if you know the end of the psalm, you'll know that it ends on a hopeful note and, and the Messiah is raised to life. And then all the nations of the earth repent of their sin and they come and they worship God and it, it's amazing. And, and, and surely Jesus had the whole of Psalm 22 in his mind whenever he was on the cross. And we might want to conclude from that that somehow Jesus quoting these words, he's saying, I'm stoically just going through my duty because I know the end is in sight. And in a sense, we would be right. There was hope in the midst of this. But what are the words from Psalm 22 that Jesus uses to express his current situation? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying that he was currently experiencing the sort of, of suffering that only the enemies of God should undergo. That God the Father had seemed to turn his face away from the Son in order to abandon him to this cruel fate of crucifixion. See, Jesus' last words here are words of true agony. There is emotion in those words. He's not a simple stoic. He's in pain. And the crowd's not helping. Look at verse 47. They hear him saying, Eli, Eli, my God, my God. And they think he's calling for Elijah. They hear that Eli, 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 that prophet of old to come and save him. And they're like, oh, this is great. It's kind of like, you imagine like a wounded soldier on the battlefield calling for his mama. You know, like mama's not coming. And they're like, oh, let's see if Elijah is going to come because Elijah's not coming. And so that they taunt him. One of them goes and runs and grabs this sour wine. And uh, this sour wine, it, it's kind of like kombucha or something. It, it's this wine that the Roman soldiers would drink. It's just their drink. And, and so one of them offers some to Jesus. And, and I mean, you can interpret that different ways. I don't think they were being kind to Jesus here. I think, honestly, that they were letting him wet his throat just so they could continue to hear him scream. Kind of like how a cat will catch a mouse and not just kill it, but they'll play with it. But even this moment here is scriptural. It's from Psalm 69 that the psalmist is suffering and he's crying out, Lord, where are you? I need you. I want you. I'm thirsty for you. And he's parched because he's crying so much. And then his enemies come and they offer him vinegar to drink. We see this being fulfilled in Christ. See, Christ doesn't want their sour wine. He doesn't, he doesn't want their pity. He doesn't want any of that as much as he wants to be close to God. He's thirsty for the Lord. Why would God forsake somebody who wants God so much? It's because God was treating Jesus as if Jesus was pure evil. God doesn't hold hands with evil. God doesn't spend time with evil. God doesn't want to look at evil. God wants to pour out his wrath and judge evil and put an end to it and kill it. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin. Not, not a speck of evil in him, but he became sin on the cross. Not in his essence, but he stood in sin's place. The Apostle Peter tells us that the righteous man stood in place of the unrighteous in order to bring us to God. He is the spotless lamb killed as if he were a wolf. 
For the first time in Jesus' life, he did not feel close to God. He felt abandoned. God had turned away from him in disgust. And it is mysterious. But that's what the Lord tells us. See, it wasn't his sin, it was ours. It was you and me. See, God rightly would have turned away from us in disgust and poured out his wrath upon us, his people in disgust, for all that we've done. But instead, he himself took our spot. He stood in that spot. And look, this spot was truly agonizing. It was horrible. Now, it's really hard for us to wrap our head around, but here's a little thought experiment for us to to do. Imagine for a moment that somehow... Maybe your identity was stolen or something, but you were convicted of horrible crimes. And in the eyes of the government, in the eyes of your church community, in the eyes of your spouse, you were now like a a terrorist or or pedophile. Imagine how you'd feel in that moment. Imagine the agony of that moment, the isolation of that moment. When your most loved person and people reject you and they don't want anything to do with you, and it's not true, it's a misunderstanding, a mislabeling. Imagine how you would feel. See, in the cosmic courtroom, Jesus was called those horrible things in in some sense. The worst things that we have ever done were blamed on him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's why he was taking our stuff on himself. See, Jesus' cry of abandonment has opened the way for us, us wicked sinners, to now stand in the holy place, the righteous place. We can be returned into God's presence because the Lord was named after our sins. Part two, his cry of death. So what would the dying words of such a misunderstood and misrepresented and mislabeled man be? Like, how would you respond in that moment? If if I was in in that sort of position, I'd probably furious. I'd be like, no, the truth has to come out. Like, like you you guys, you're wrong. You're making the mistake. Like, God's going to judge you for this. I would be cursing them. I mean, imagine whenever somebody in your family misunderstands something you did. Don't you get angry, you know? Like, like, this was like death stuff. I I feel like any of us would be furious We might even curse God. But no, what does Jesus do? Look at verse 50. Look at verse 50. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. Luke's version records his last words there being, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. See, his life wasn't being yanked away from him. Jesus' cry of death here was not a whimper. It it was the roar of the Lion of Judah who was in control. With a loud voice, he cries out. And he's essentially saying, it is finished. Like, Father, I have done it. I have suffered unjustly, and now I lay down my life so that your people, my bride, can be forgiven. 
He yielded his spirit and death so that he could march into that cosmic courtroom, that holy of holies, and bring his own blood into the altar to pay for our sins. And he chose to do that. The Jesus that was nailed to the cross chose to be there. See, in John's gospel, he explains earlier on that, that he, his life is never taken from him. He lays down his life. God has given him the authority to lay it down and pick it up again. That is what God has charged him to do. Sometimes you hear people on TikTok or YouTube or in your university say something like, Jesus was killed because he was like a, a revolutionary or something or, or a false teacher. And, and that's why. But, but these people don't understand that Jesus came in order to be killed. That was his mission. be killed for you, me, for all of us like sheep have gone astray, each one to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In Jesus' cry of abandonment, we hear true agony, but in his cry of death, we hear true love. He did this of his own accord because he loves you. And now look, th this cry, it didn't just echo off the rocks and dissipate. Like the universe heard the cry of his master, of its master. And that's why all these things happen in the verses below, all these signs we see. Look at verse 51. The temple curtain, it tears from the top all the way to the bottom. Through the death of Christ, you now have access into the presence of God. That, that, that we're just too covered in sin in order to enter before Next, that we see this earthquake and the rock split. And, and then what I know you've all been just sort of waiting for me to get to, verse 52. Look at verse 52. Graves open up and dead people climb out of these graves and appear to many. What in the world? What is happening here? You know, I want to know more. Matthew, please tell us more. Did these people like walk around and have a normal life again? Or like, like were these like saints from like, like David or, or like really... From the past people, or were they recent people? Did they, did they just like come into the city and then say something and then poof? Or were they like taken up like Enoch and Elijah into heaven? We don't know. Matthew, tell us more. Um, I think my suspicion of what is going on here is that Jesus' death is the end of the world. Like it's an end of the world event. What, what, what do I mean? What am I getting at? Well, in the Old Testament... Uh, it, the, the day of the Lord, the end, is described as being filled with earthquakes, rock shattering when the Lord comes down on earth. And it, actually, in Amos chapter 8, this is really neat, you can look it up later. Um, Amos 8 says that on the day of the Lord, the, like the, the sky will go dark. The sun will hide its light at noon. Did, did he catch in the first verse of our passage... When the sky went dark, noon. Like, it's, it's amazing. Um, and this is recorded in pagan histories of the time. They think it was an earthquake, but I don't know if y'all noticed that there should have been a full moon last night because Easter or Passover is based on a lunar calendar. Anyway, uh, this, this event is uh, of the earth darkening was promised by the Lord as an end of the world sort of thing. And you know what else happens at the end of the world in the Old Testament? A resurrection from the dead. And people are raised to eternal life or to be judged and, and sent to hell. And I think this resurrection that we see was a sign of the end. Like the, the, the old is passing away and the new is coming and it starts with the death of Christ. 
the events we see, they were signs that that wonderful and dreadful day has begun. And what does this mean for us? The other day, I was so excited to look outside my driveway and see green stuff sprouting out from the soil. Did y'all see that around your house? You felt that joy, eh? Like it's coming. Spring is coming. Winter is breaking. These signs are that winter is breaking. Let us be encouraged by those, especially those of us who are really weary of this world. If this world were like a book, Jesus' death would be that climax at the end, that, that high point in the story. It's a victory story. He's won the victory, and now we're in those final paragraphs after the victory comes, and we're waiting for just Jesus to return and our eternal epilogue with him to begin. So those are Jesus' last words, his, his cry of abandonment, his cry of death. So what do we do with this? Part three. You and me. I suppose that if Jesus were Captain Miller, he would say something like, earn this. Live a life that is so perfect that you can somehow pay for the cost that I've paid for you. So, something like that. But, and, and we'd be bound to this fate of, of just trying to live up a life worthy of the cross. And of look, look, of course the cross motivates us to live a good life. Of course it, it, it motivates us to fight tooth and nail against sin and to love God more, of course. But Jesus didn't say earn this. Those weren't his last words. He wasn't talking, telling us to do something. He was talking about him and what he did. Foremost... We are to be spectators of Christ in his death, to gaze upon him. That is what Good Friday is for us today. We are to witness him die. Now, some of you are going to find some, some, something in common with, with the witnesses we find in this passage, the first ones, the soldier, the centurion. Uh, look at verse 34. Some of you who are new to Christ might, might find some companionship here. Uh, so, so these soldiers, they see everything, and then what do they say? Truly, this was the Son of God. Uh, we don't have much info on these soldiers, but... It, I'm sure that they were used to something about sons of God, that their emperors called themselves sons of God, they, they, uh, their myths were full of sons of God, like gods would come and, and have human offspring, so they're familiar with that sort of idea. But this whole Jewish debate over Jesus being the son of God, that was pretty new to them. They, were, you know, they seemed like, well, Jesus doesn't look like an emperor, he doesn't act like Hercules, so he's probably a, a phony, he's, he's, he's losing this debate, we're, we're siding with the Jews on this one. And... They see everything that happens. They see what Jesus cries out. They, they see everything that happens in, in the aftermath, and, and they change their, their tune. They're like, all these things that we see with Jesus don't add up. He can't just be a mortal man. There has to be something more. And maybe this morning you're, you're seeing this, and there's like, no way this Jesus guy's a normal man. What more normal man would act the way he did on this day? What normal man would have these events happen around his death? Nobody. There has to be something special about Jesus. And, and, and maybe like them, you're starting to say, like, truly, this was the Son of God. Be encouraged. You're hearing the cry of Christ calling out to you. Listen. Follow him. 
Others of you this morning, you've known Jesus for a long time. You might have more in common with those women we see in the last verses. You're going deeper in your faith, yet sometimes life just gets harder the deeper and closer to Christ you get. And consider the, the women. Look at verse 55. There are many women. They're standing a distance away. These were his disciples, his followers. They served Jesus. They followed him all the way from Galilee to Jerusalem. And now they, they've seen a great and crazy thing happen in Jerusalem. Earlier in the week, they were there watching crowds you know, say, Hosanna, Hosanna, like laying down palm branches and stuff. And they're like, ah. They're finally getting to see that my king is the true king, and he's setting up his kingdom, and their hopes are getting up. But now they watch, and what do they see? They see a dead king. See, they were, they were hopeful, but now their hopes are crushed. Surely tears are in their eyes. Their heart is just being ripped in two. Verse 56, who do we see? Mary Magdalene was there. How could the man who cast out seven demons from her now be dead? Could he do anything? And now I want us to take special look at the last person mentioned in the verse. Who knew see? The mother of the sons of Zebedee. She actually appears earlier in Matthew's gospel, and many of you know the story. She comes to Jesus. She's like, Jesus, I've got a favor to ask from you. You know my two boys, James and John. Whenever you're made king... Can you put them at your right and left hand? And Jesus is, is like, you don't know what you're asking for. And he looks at the boys, he's like, are, are you able to drink my cup? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll do it, Lord. And he's like, it's not mine to give you the place at the right or left, but, but you will drink my cup. And now their mother is looking at this cross. Is this the cup? Are my boys who are following Jesus, being his disciples, going to drink that cup? Yeah. Yeah, they are. Her son James, he was a great servant in the church, great leader. In Acts chapter 12, Herod kills him. Her other son John... He doesn't die. He grows to be an old man. But every one of his friends from, from these days are killed. He is alone, and eventually he is exiled to the Isle of Patmos. You know the story. These men served. They followed. But much of their life, it wasn't this grand story of the kingdom come and everything's getting greater and greater and greater. They suffered. They drank the cup. And why did they do it? Were they trying to earn something? No, they were looking at the cross of Christ. They saw his love, and they followed him. They wanted him. Uh, this past week, I started playing with a Rubik's Cube. Any of y'all ever play, play with a Rubik's Cube? Those things can make you feel really dumb. I was, I was working at it. I was like, oh, this thing's great. And then the more I tried to fix it, like the worse it got. So I, I did what everybody would do. I Googled how to solve a Rubik's Cube. And so I was following this guide online. And I was like, okay, it's cool. You do these little algorithms and it starts to solve. And the more you do it, like I was just following. I was, I was getting so amazed because it was all coming together. All the pieces were lining up. It started on one side and starts going up. And then everything is done except these four top corners. And I'm like, this is amazing amazing. It's about to be finished. And then the guide says, now this last little algorithm you're going to do, it's going to look like everything you've done is going to be destroyed. But just do it. Just keep doing it and it'll work. And so I start doing it 
and then all this beauty I just created just comes undone. It's just destroyed. And I was like, oh no, and so, so I try and fix it, and I end up ruining it. I have to start over like two or three times until eventually I'm like, no, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do what the thing tells me to do. And so, so I get to that last point, it's looking beautiful, you know, right, down, right, down, and then it just starts unraveling, and I'm like, oh, and then I just keep doing it, I keep doing it. And then all of a sudden, in my hands, I'm holding this beautifully solved Rubik's Cube. Sometimes when you follow Jesus, it feels like everything is being destroyed. Everything falls apart. You're drinking the bitter cup. Your friendships change, you lose people. Your relationships change, your, your work can sometimes change. The things that make you happy, sometimes those things have to be ripped away from you to follow Jesus. And it feels like you are losing everything. But trust him. Follow his words. Like, look at Jesus' own life. He's telling you, follow me. Trust him, even when it falls apart. He saved you. You will persevere because of what he has done, even when it feels like you're falling apart. Let's pray. God, you chose the path of the cross. You chose to take our sin on yourself. You chose the scorn and the hatred and the disgust. And you did it all because you chose us. You are mighty to behold. So Father, Son, and Spirit, we say thank you. In the name of Jesus, our King. Amen.